Well, good morning. Gluttony. I don't think we need to comment on on why I'm the one (laughs) preaching on gluttony this morning. Brian likes to give me things that I'm familiar with, you know, that I've experienced. There's a great Seinfeld episode where Jerry has decided to make some changes to his eating habits. And so they're, they're there at the coffee shop, and the, the server comes up with his food, and uh, Elaine says to him, what is this? And Jerry says, it's a veggie sandwich and a grapefruit. Veggie sandwich and a grapefruit? What are you turning into? And Jerry says, a healthy person. And then later uh, in that episode, he's on a blind date with Elaine's cousin, and she takes him to this restaurant, and she orders a porterhouse rare, and Jerry's trying to eat healthy. And so he says to the server, you know, do you have anything else? And he's like, oh, well, we've got a rack of lamb. And he's like, yeah, do you have anything lighter? How's the chicken? And the guy says, oh, it's a full bird stuffed with ham topped with gorgonzola. (laughs) And Jerry says, you know, I think I'll just have a salad. And for the rest of that episode, that echoes in his mind, just a salad, just a salad. And he ends up going out with this woman a few more times, and and she finds it very strange that he's just a salad eater. And so he pretends to eat all of these rich foods, and he's like spitting them out and hiding them in napkins, hiding it in his couch. And he's become this, you know, no offense to the vegetarians in the room, but, but in his mind, he's become this weirdo who only eats salad. And for the rest of the episode, this is Jerry, just a salad, just a salad. We have a really strange relationship with food, don't we? I mean, depending on who you ask, we're either a culture filled with overweight, overeating, inactive slobs, or we're a culture filled with image-obsessed exercise fanatics. Our food is too fatty, it's too sugary, it's too processed. We apparently either need more cholesterol or less cholesterol, or sometimes even both at once. You can be vegan, Paleo, raw, South Beach, no-carb, low-carb, organic, all of these terms have taken on meaning and they're new identity markers in our culture. Strangely, gluttony has never been seen as more deadly and at the same time less sinful than in our current cultural situation. But I think that's because our culture actually has a very limited understanding of gluttony. We think that we can come in a room like this and hear a sermon on gluttony and that we can kind of look around and pick out the people that we know are struggling with it. This is better than all the other sins, right? Because we don't really know who's struggling with pride or envy or lust, but we can kind of tell who struggles with gluttony. That's what we think. But gluttony is much more complex than just overeating. And the ancients actually saw gluttony as as a multi-layered thing. You could either eat too daintily, too sumptuously, too hastily, too greedily, and too much. What you eat, what you don't eat, how you eat it, how much and how quickly, all reveal to us how we use food as comfort and control mechanisms in our lives. So this morning, I'm not going to refer back very much to our Philippians passage. In fact, we're going to kind of cobble together the scriptures that we read as well as some others to try to pull together this Christian understanding of sin and wholeness through the lens of food. The 10,000-foot view of the world from a Christian perspective is something that we talk about a lot here. 
And it's this, that, that a triune God created all that there is, that he spoke into being a physical universe filled with complexity and beauty, and that he created humanity as his ambassadors, his image bearers in the world. And the picture that we're given of the world at its earliest stages is like a, a woven tapestry or a rope, some sort of fabric that is built together with a particular order. And, and this idea of wholeness, this, this, this complexity of things in their right order is what the Hebrew word shalom is trying to sum up, that everything is as it should be. Nothing's broken, nothing's missing. But of course, as Christians understand the world, we recognize that humanity started pulling on the autonomy thread. And the harder we pull, suddenly the relational fabric of the entire world starts to unravel. And so now... It's not just that we're, you know, sinful, rebellious people. We're also broken apart in a myriad ways. I mean, we're not in right relationship with each other. We're not in right relationship with our environment. We're not even in right relationship within ourselves. And we're not in right relationship with God. So as we've been talking about the seven deadly sins over the past number of weeks, in many ways, we are talking most directly about the disorder that we have created in the world. We're talking about the ways in which we have taken the good things that God has given us, and we have twisted them and mangled them, turning them into things that they were never meant to be. And the reason that we do this is because we were created to be fulfilled primarily in our relationship with God. But we have, we have turned away from him. We have said, we don't want to do that. And so in our refusal of him, we have grasped at anything and everything else and we make whatever gives us the most pleasure or meaning in the moment the primary things that our lives begin to orbit around. And what happens? We find ourselves more and more unfulfilled. We find ourselves yearning for something that we can't even put a name to. And I would ask you to consider, if you've felt that in your life, consider this. If you have been designed to find primary fulfillment in an infinite, eternal being— doesn't it make sense that if you were to put anything else into that place, that it would eventually become a prison? If you were designed to find fulfillment in something that is infinite, anything less is going to feel like a prison from time to time. So what do we do? We, we take a healthy sense of, health, of, of self, a healthy sense of achievement and accomplishment, things that are absolutely wonderful as creative creatures, but we twist these things into the bedrock of our identity. And so if we do good, we end up finding ourselves living in a prison of pride. But if we achieve poorly, we find ourselves living in the prison of sloth. We take sex, which is incredible and really pretty super fun. And it's a way to be known by another person in, in the context of love and commitment, and we try to smash it down into lust, treating our bodies like nothing more than a series of electronic sparks and treating others like nothing more than a slab of meat with a heartbeat. We take community, living around and with other people, living, living in, a, in a complex society filled with variation, filled with the beauty of diversity, and we twist it into envy. Whatever anyone else has, suddenly we demand for ourselves. Do you see the connection point in all of the vices that we've been talking about over the last few weeks? It's us. And this is something that the desert fathers and mothers discovered quite clearly as they had tried to kind of get themselves away from the pressures of the world, from these sorts of sins. They found themselves almost embroiled in it more because we are the connection point. Our selfishness is the thing that drives us to these vices. So gluttony, 
As we begin, I just want to give you the clearest definition of gluttony that I can find, and that is it is eating and drinking that excludes God. Gluttony is any eating and drinking that excludes God. So with that in our minds, let's look at how gluttony distorts our relationship with our environment, how it distorts our relationship to ourselves and others, and how it distorts our relationship with God. And then finally, we'll look at how gluttony is cured. So first of all, gluttony in the environment. Food, of all things, should make us acutely aware of how we are tied in with a larger world. It should make us aware of our connectedness to the earth and her creatures. Food is ultimately a mystery. That, that something, whether it's vegetation or animal, gives its life, it dies in order to feed us, that we might have life. It's a showing forth of life and death and interdependence. It's a showing forth of things beyond our control. Food keeps us tethered to reality, or at least it should. It keeps us tethered to seasons, to weather, to the strange mixture that occurs of earth, water, and sunshine. Food connects us to the life of other creatures. We can breed cows, but we can never make one out of thin air. We can make bread and harvest grain, but we can't make wheat out of nothing. Our act of eating should be a many times daily reminder that we are part of a larger world. It should remind us that there is supposed to be an order. There's supposed to be a shalom to the world that follows the pattern that God set out. We see it in the seasons from summer to winter, from husks of death coming to life, springing forth in seed, being brought to fruit and blossom. Wendell Berry is uh, a pretty incisive thinker in our time, and he's one of these guys that can seem sort of cantankerous if you don't understand where he's coming from, but he's pointed out rather astutely that in modern life, many of us have fallen prey to the superstition that money is what brings forth food. Gluttony distorts our relationship with our environment by causing us to no longer take life seriously. We think that we're fed by our money, and so we, we go through the drive through almost assuming that the food we're about to eat was just brought forth out of thin air. We have become unthoughtful consumers. There are no cows or pigs or chickens in our consciousness, just styrofoam packages of meat. But these things don't just come from nowhere. And the model that we have built for our food production is really built on the base of our gluttony, our desire to keep having new and interesting flavors, rich flavors, over and over and over. And regardless of, of what you think about the politics of food and, and all these different sorts of conversations that are happening, whether you're liberal or conservative, when you consider that God called forth vegetation to grow on the earth and that he created creatures to roam the earth and he called them all good, you will be forced to admit that the horrors of factory farming are truly an abomination. Cows spending their entire lives in pens, knee-deep in their own excrement. Weak and injured chickens packed so tightly in rows that they can barely move. Animals so sickly due to the conditions that we have imposed upon them that they are flooded with antibiotics. These are God's creatures. He did not make them to spend their lives this way, but our gluttony, in our gluttony, we cut ourselves off from that knowledge because our insatiable desire for rich foods at next to nothing cost becomes the only factor at play. And I think we're starting to see the effects of this disorder, of this dislocation. 
Not just on the creatures that we've confined, but our soils are becoming depleted through mass production, chemical-laden farming techniques. Our water sources are becoming polluted with animal waste. Methane gas is polluting our air, and we can't seem to stop. But food isn't simply designed to connect us to our environment. It's also designed to bring nourishment to our bodies and to bring community and connectivity around our tables. Food is designed to bring us pleasure and enjoyment in a connective, life-giving way. The variety of flavors and textures, colors, these things are all aesthetic. And the ways that we can creatively prepare the same type of crops in such different ways allows us to utilize our creativeness. Food becomes us. We take in bread and fruit, wine and cheese, and it keeps us alive. It animates us. It gives us energy to go about the other tasks of our lives. But food also makes friends out of strangers. Food gives a center of gravity to our communities. Food can heal enmity. When the psalmist says that God prepares a table for him in the presence of his enemies, that's a meaningful thing because you don't just sit down and eat around your enemies. We have food with everything, don't we? We eat at weddings. We give meals to families with new children. We eat at funerals. Food can create and honor the memory of loved ones. But gluttony distorts our relationship to ourselves and to others in a a few different ways. And I think within ourselves, there are two opposing doorways to gluttony. And one is that we would only eat for immediate pleasure. We become so addicted to sugar and fat or whatever it is that we fail to take account of our own needs and of nutrition and that over time we, we lose sense of how our bodies work. We don't notice that our sugar intake is related to our irritability. But the opposite door of gluttony for, for within ourselves is to see food as only fuel. There was a time uh, for a while, it was a while ago, that I had a gym membership and there were these uh, personal trainers there and they would meet with me, and, and they would want me to, to diary everything that I was eating and, and mark down the calories. And I refused, obviously. I mean, that's not going to happen. But, but I noticed that all of these personal trainers, uh, most of them would only eat freezer meals. And I finally asked them, I was like, why do you guys eat f- like, like frozen dinners? I mean, you guys seem so in tune with health and all this stuff. And it was, you know why? Because they could count the calories. They didn't, have, they didn't have to like do the math in their head. They could just count them up. And what happens is that we, we begin to see food, food as only fuel, and though it's counterintuitive in our current culture, some of us that have this need to count calories, to eat only particular things cooked in a particular way, is itself a form of gluttony. C.S. Lewis tells this story uh, in, in one of his books of, the, of this woman who thinks that she's not a glutton because she says, all I want is just a little piece of toast, just, just a small cup of tea, just, you know, some dry toast, all I want. And C.S. Lewis picks up on that phrase, all I want, all I want. When food becomes primarily about our desires, that is gluttony, making food the most important thing in our lives. But gluttony also cuts us off from other people. And we can see this in very obvious ways in our culture. We eat in our cars, we eat at our desks, we eat in front of our television. And for some of us, the guilt that we have associated with overeating or junk food binging causes us to hide away and eat alone. But gluttony can also cut us off from people in ways that are less obvious because for gluttons, socializing is simply important to get food. 
The immediate pleasure and comfort derived from food become the primary factors, and the other people gathered around the table are secondary at best. Gluttony can indeed be deadly when it reaches the fevered pitch of eating disorders. Eating disorders are very complicated and very saddening things. And, and in a sermon on gluttony, the thing that is so easy to happen is that people that struggle with these sorts of things would, would feel that they are being, you know, sort of condemned, almost adding another layer of guilt, that it's not just that you have a disorder or, or a sickness, but now you're rebelling and sinful. And that's not at all what I mean to do this morning. And like so many other things that we've looked at during this series, these are complex issues, and we are complex people, and it requires a deep amount of help and empathy from a community to help get set right again. But really what eating disorders are is just clearer examples of the ways in which we are broken people and we use the things that are in our grasp to find comfort and control in our lives. Ultimately, though, gluttony is deadly because of the way it distorts our relationship to God. Food, at every opportunity, should be a moment of thankfulness, of recognition that we are not in control, that we cannot keep ourselves alive in our own power. Food, in all its beauty and variety, is to lead us into the beauty and complexity of God. We take joy in eating bread and drinking wine as a way of taking joy in God. Wine is good because God is good. Gluttony, though, causes us to turn away from God, to hide ourselves away from recognizing his provision in food. And we instead start to build our own identity around food as just a salad. Just a salad. Ultimately, gluttony leads us to, as Paul tells us in Philippians, make gods of our own stomachs. And we twist down the good gifts of God into attempts at ultimate fulfillment. But what we find is that food, much like sex, doesn't last. We require it over and over. And if we've made it our God, if we've tried to create our identity in how we use food, we will find ourselves becoming caricatures of ourselves, either eating more and more or less and less, becoming more isolated until we have cut off the world, cut off our fellow humanity, and cut out God completely from our lives. It is in this sense that gluttony is a deadly sin because a constantly full belly, a tongue that has never denied its craving, blinds us to our abject need of God. Did you catch that quote in the beginning of our bulletin from, from Beekner? He tells us, A glutton is one who raids the icebox for a cure for spiritual malnutrition. What he's saying is that our physical hunger is a way of ticking us off to the, to the fact that we are hungry for something deeper, something better. We're hungry for God. And when we keep just constantly satisfying our physical hunger, we fail to realize that we're truly hungry for God. So what do we do? I mean, I think if we're honest with ourselves, gluttony has turned out to not be the sin that we can just point out in other people. It's really the sin that, that most of us struggle with because food is constant all around us, and we use it for comfort all the time. What's the way out? What's the cure for gluttony? Well, if you've hung around here very long, odds are you, you probably already know what I'm going to say. The cure for gluttony is not self-discipline. It's not fasting. Self-discipline and fasting are very good things, and they are things that can draw us deeper into the life and mission of God, but they are not things that can cure us. 
The cure for gluttony is Jesus. The seven deadly sins are expressions of our disordered love. The cure for lust is not to hate sex. The cure for pride is not to hate the self. The cure for gluttony is not to hate food. The cure for all of these things is to love Jesus more than sex, more than food, more than self. Well, how do we do that? Well, Jesus reminds us that man does not live on bread alone. And when he's quoted as saying that in the gospel, he has been wandering through the desert for 40 days, fasting, no food, no water. And what he's doing is he's recapitulating the story of Israel. When the people of Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years, and the devil comes and meets Jesus, and he tempts him by saying, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. And when Jesus says that man does not live on bread alone, he is hearkening back to the prophet Moses. But he tells the devil that man is sustained. Man lives on the word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's what satisfies. That's what brings life. And John's gospel tells us that Jesus is that word. And in John's gospel, Jesus comes before the crowds after he's just performed this miracle and he's fed thousands of them with fish and bread. And the next day they come back, what? Hungry. And he says to them, I am the bread of life. The bread come down from heaven. Eat my flesh and drink my blood and you will be satisfied. And the disciples are like, that did not get approved as a PR message because it's weird. <laughs> that slogan is not going to sell well with our core demographics. What do you, I mean, that's, what are you talking about? And even later, at the Last Supper, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, and he takes bread and he breaks it and he gives it to his disciples and he says, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And he takes the cup of wine and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Drink this, all of you, in remembrance of me. They still don't get it. But it's after his death and it's after his resurrection, which we will be celebrating soon, when the church is birthed, that the followers of Jesus finally begin to realize that he was quite serious. Unless you eat of his flesh or drink of his blood, you have no life in you. And the beauty of the Christian story is that we are taught to love Jesus more and more by having a taste of him every week. That's how we get to the place of having our loves ordered rightly again. And that 10,000-foot view of the world, the one that starts with everything in wholeness, everything at peace, everything ordered rightly, and then being torn apart, gets brought back together as a new tapestry of beauty. Do you know how the Bible describes it? As a feast. It's a wedding feast. Food is not the problem. It's when we use food to become God. Friends, we turn away from God almost incessantly, don't we? We're so good at it. We use whatever we can find to distract us. And we bend inward on ourselves, becoming grotesque cartoons of what we are intended to be, seeking fulfillment in every corner. But Jesus comes, and he interrupts all of our dithering, all of our exhausting activity, and he steps into our endless hunger to be known, to be loved, to be filled, and he knows us, and he loves us, and he fills us with himself. The lie of gluttony is that we will somehow, if we just keep trying, eat our way to godhood and eternal life. But the truth of Christianity is that when we stop 
seeking elsewhere. Stop trying that we will be fed by God and with God himself. Let's pray together. Jesus, we pray that we would find you fulfilling our deepest longings. Would you allow us to realize uh, this week the, the beautiful gift that you have given us in food? Would we enjoy it immensely? Would it bring together our families, our neighbors, our communities? Would it remind us of your love for us, that you are the one who provides, and that you do so gladly? But as we come to your table in a moment, as we finish out this, this season of Lent, a season of fasting, and we look forward to the feast of Easter, knowing that we will feed on you, and one day we will feast with you at your table, we ask that we would be satisfied, that our longing would only be for you to know you more, we ask in your name. Amen.